the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, beginning with verse 33 and reading down through verse 41. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Amen. We'll end our reading there in Mark 15, verse 41. Let's once again ask God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as we come to this portion of your word, it is clear, it is not difficult to understand, Lord, in one sense, but the things dealt with in this passage, the great reality that Christ, the Son was abandoned by his Father, that the curtain in the temple was torn in two, that our Lord Jesus breathed his last. Oh, Lord, these things are so great, so far beyond us, that we very much feel the need for the help of your Spirit to enable us to face these realities, to receive them in faith, to understand how they apply to our lives, and to follow a Savior who went to the cross and uttered this cry of dereliction. Oh, Lord, help us in this utmost extremity. Help us in this lowest point of his life to see him for who he truly is, to worship him, to cling to him. In his name we pray. Amen. This is a paragraph in the Gospel of Mark where it really would be possible to slow down and take just one or two verses at a time. Because although what's happened is simple, and although Mark tells it simply, the meaning that is embedded in it is transcendent. It's very difficult to set out what is involved here, not because it's so hard to understand, but just because it's so big, it's so pivotal, it's so important. When we come to the gospel narratives, we've, we've noticed this before, but this is maybe especially true here. Of course, we're familiar with what happens. We know what to expect. But the version that we're more likely to think of is a composite version. For instance, probably most of you know that there are seven last words of Christ on the cross, seven utterances that Christ gives. But Mark only tells you about two of them, and he only tells you the content of one of them. So when you put all four Gospels together, you can say, okay, Christ said these seven things, most likely in this order. But Mark doesn't give you that information. 
And what Mark leaves out is important, is significant to understand, because what Mark leaves out shapes the meaning that he's bringing out of here. Now, you may remember, if you cast your minds way back to Mark chapter 1, that Mark has had a very important, very decided focus here. Mark chapter 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He identifies Jesus from the beginning as the Son of God. And of course, when Jesus is baptized also in Mark chapter 1, Verse 11, a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, the demons have recognized Christ as the Holy One of God, but this issue of his identity, is he the Son of God, has been a significant one in his trial. You remember, perhaps from chapter 14, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am to that. So Mark has identified Jesus as the Son of God in sort of the title, in the opening of the gospel. God has identified Jesus as his Son in the baptism. Demons have recognized a special connection and he's been asked about it at, at his trial. He has said it. But what has not happened is human beings recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God. What hasn't happened is people seeing this truth about him. Now, you might be thinking, well, what about Peter's confession of him? Well, in Mark's version of Peter's confession of Christ, where Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And they give the various answers. And then he says, who do you say that I am? Peter answers. And in Mark, all he says is, you are the Christ. So Mark has saved a human being, other than Jesus, acknowledging Jesus to be the son of God for this moment in his gospel. And from whose mouth does that acknowledgement, from whose mouth does that confession come? From a Roman centurion, from the captain of the soldiers there who were responsible for crucifying him. Now think about that for a moment. Who would you have expected to be the first to identify Jesus as the Son of God? Would it have been a Roman would it have been a member of the military? Would it have been one of the people responsible for the actual physical act of crucifixion? Would it have been one of the people who benefited from casting lots over the garments that they stripped from Jesus? Is that who you would expect to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God? Probably not. If you were making up this story, you would say, oh, yeah, nobody's going to believe that. But it is the case. And in that fact, we see a very great lesson. It's, in a sense, it's really at the heart of the Gospel of Mark. Christ's death is the great revelation of his identity. 
Now, Christ is revealed throughout the Gospel of Mark. Christ is revealed in his baptism. Christ is revealed in his preaching. Christ is revealed in his miracles. But Christ is also revealed in his rejection, in his arrest, in his humiliation, in his cry of dereliction, and in his death. Now, this is not exclusive to Mark. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul knows that Christ rose from the dead. He expands on that at length in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul knows that Christ ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God above every principality and power and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world that is to come. And Paul doesn't deny any of that. Paul preaches all of that. But it's centered in a crucified Christ. Paul and Mark, the New Testament in general then, we understand from it, you do not know who Jesus is apart from his death. Apart, I mean, you can take in the whole complex, arrest, trial, crucifixion, suffering, humiliation, Death and burial. You could definitely add that as well. Why? Why do you not know who Jesus is apart from his death? Well, that's a big question. I'm going to try to answer that question a little bit, but it's going to take some thought. We're going to have to reflect on this for a while. So let's start off with what happened here. Well, when the sixth hour had come, and the sixth hour is understood to be about noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three hours of darkness. That is not a lunar eclipse. A, this was the period of Passover, and so the moon would have been in the wrong phase in order for there to be an eclipse. And B, when was the last time you heard of an eclipse lasting three hours? We had an eclipse a little bit earlier this month. It did not last that long. This is not a normal phenomenon. This is something supernatural. This is something above and beyond. We don't know what mechanism God used to cause this to happen, but this was something God did. Why? What's the meaning of the darkness? Well, you remember the plagues in the land of Egypt where God sent 10 plagues and the ninth plague, the Next to last plague was darkness over the whole land. Mark seems to echo that language when he says there was darkness over the whole land. Or then again, in the book of Amos, it says that when God brings judgment, there will be mourning as for an only son, but he also says that there will be darkness at noon. So what does the darkness mean? The darkness means God's judgment. And isn't that confirmed by the words of Jesus when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Throughout this gospel, Jesus has called upon God as father. This is the only place where he speaks to God and doesn't call him father. Why? Because he has been forsaken. He's been abandoned. Now, when you say that, of course, people always have questions, and I understand. 
These are not easy questions to answer. Was he forsaken in the sense that God said, okay, I wash my hands of him? Well, no. Was he forsaken in the sense that God said, everything is over? No. Was he forsaken in the sense that God did not continue to uphold him in being? Clearly not. So in what sense was he forsaken? Well, he was forsaken in that loaded down with our sins, he was treated as a sinner. The judgment of God fell on him. That's the sense. By the way, just in passing here, when you see Christ in this condition, when you see him calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you understand that if an answer had been given in that moment, it would have been because you are loaded down with the sins of the people gathered at Ebenezer Reformed Church. Doesn't that put sin in a different light? How can you say, well, it's not a big deal. Well, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter? This is what it led to. This is where sin brings God the Son. Now, it wasn't his sin, but it was your sin. Your sin brought him to this point. We should never say that sin is a little matter. We should never think, well, it's not a big deal. Well, God will forgive me. Oh, may God forgive us for thinking that way because this was the cost of sin. This was the judgment on sin. Sometimes we feel far from God. We feel like God has forsaken us, like God has abandoned us. We feel like God does not answer our prayers. We feel alienated or estranged from God, like there's tension in the relationship, and we don't know how to pray. We don't know how to speak to God. In our case, it's a feeling. In Christ's case, it was a reality. God genuinely had poured out wrath upon him. There really was a breach in the relationship. Now, we could spend all our time just on this portion because there's a lot to learn. What do you do when you feel far from God? You don't have that happy confidence to say, Father, please. Well, the Lord Jesus was there. He still called upon God and he called upon God as his. He still called upon God in the words of scripture. This comes from Psalm 22. He was still honest with God. He told him how he felt. You've forsaken me. You've abandoned me. All of those things apply to us also when we find ourselves in darkness, spiritually speaking, as Christ was literally in darkness here. But we do not experience the fullness of what Christ experienced here. Maybe this is very daring, but let me just suggest this to you. Even the people who go to hell, even the people who experience God's judgment there, do not experience the full depth of what the Lord Jesus experienced. Why not? Because they never had that warm, that open, that free, that loving, that eternal relationship with God that the Lord Jesus did. In other words, they experience the same judgment of being forsaken by God. They experience that positive infliction of punishment, yes, but they don't experience the loss 
as deeply because they never had what Jesus had to lose. People say you don't miss what you never had. Well, looked at in that light, what the Lord Jesus experienced was worse than what any individual person would experience in hell. That's a sign of judgment. The darkness, the cry of desolation, even the reference to Elijah might make us think about judgment. For one thing, when this this bystander gives him a sponge full of sour wine, well, that's one of the lamentations in the Psalms, right? That in thirst, we were given vinegar to drink instead of something a little bit nicer. But then the reference to Elijah, well, Elijah had come in the person of John the Baptist, and they had mistreated Elijah. Elijah was supposed to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. They didn't recognize it. They're looking for maybe Elijah will show up now, but Elijah had already come. Elijah had already been rejected. And so there was nothing that needed to happen before judgment fell. And then when the curtain of the temple is torn in two, there is a judgment there. You remember the Lord Jesus had said about himself, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He had also said, speaking about the literal building, that not one stone would be left upon another. I don't know if you remember in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel had a vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. And after that, the temple was destroyed. Well, the Lord Jesus had left the temple And subsequently, a few years later, the temple was destroyed. Well, this ripping of the curtain, I would understand to be sort of a first installment of that. God is done with the temple. But God is done with the temple at the death of Jesus, the true temple who has died. He has been destroyed. That sounds a little complicated, doesn't it? What I'm trying to get at is that the signs of God's judgment all around show you that God is the judge, that he will judge sin. It shows you what sin deserves. It also shows you that that judgment fell on Christ. As that judgment falls on Christ, it means that the whole Old Testament way of doing things has expired. It's reached its fulfillment, its culmination, and its expiration in Christ. And in that, then, there's a hint of hope. There's a few hints of hope in this passage. There's the hint of hope that in spite of being abandoned, forsaken, judicially left by God the Father, Jesus still cries out, my God, my God. Not everybody understands you. this guy who gets the idea, well, maybe he's asking for Elijah. I don't know if he didn't hear clearly or didn't recognize the allusion to Psalm 22 or what happened. That was a strange thing to think in this context. But you notice what is happening. You notice the pattern here. He puts some vinegar on a sponge, but then leaves him alone. That doesn't really solve the problem. And what has been happening, of course, is everybody has been making fun of Christ. Everybody has been turning their backs on Christ. He's been betrayed. He's been denied. He's been mocked. He's been crucified. And now the darkness falls. His father also has left him. The depth of that, the weight of that, we never fully take in. 
with all of that going on, with this incomprehension around, Christ still says, my God. Then it's also a hint of hope that the veil of the temple is torn because the veil, certainly it provided very restricted access. But now that it's torn, even though it's torn in judgment, it's giving the message that now access to God will be opened more widely. Now, you wouldn't necessarily learn that just from this passage unless you had the centurion. In this, in the death of Christ, the centurion sees something that persuades him this is the Son of God. Now, we don't know what the centurion's background knowledge was. We don't know what he was thinking about. We don't know if he was aware of the temple curtain being ripped in two or not. So for us to figure out how he came to that conclusion, we're not going to be able to do that. Mark doesn't give us the inside, the subjective psychological process the centurion passed through. Mark just shows us the outside. He shows us Jesus dies, the curtain is torn, and the centurion believes. The centurion recognizes who Jesus is. Well, that's a hint of hope. Somehow, in the midst of this terrible judgment, a Gentile, somebody complicit in the death of Christ, somebody who took an active role, has understood who he is. In the middle of this darkness, light has dawned. Out of judgment, mercy has been born. Out of the crucifixion, out of the death of Christ, the gospel is reaching out more widely. God judged his own son in judgment, in anger, in justice. And a Gentile believes. That's a very strong hint of hope, isn't it? And it highlights God's method. How does God have mercy on us? It's never by eliminating judgment. God brings mercy out of judgment, through judgment. How is there mercy for you, all of us here today, as those who are also complicit in the death of Christ because he died for our sins? How is there mercy for us? Not by God saying, well, we'll just forget about the judgment. I just won't judge. No, he did judge. He judged rigorously. He judged righteously. You remember Romans 8.32, he did not spare his own son. He didn't diminish how much judgment there was. The whole amount was poured out upon Christ. But because it was poured out on Christ, not on us, God brought mercy out of judgment. And so the tearing of the temple curtain, which was a sign of God's judgment on his people, which was a sign of God's judgment on that place, on the corruption and distortions that they had introduced there, it was also a sign of mercy. And that has been the pattern of God's dealings from the beginning. God announced to Adam and Eve that they would die when they took of the fruit that he had forbidden. And he cast them out of the Garden of Eden so that they would not eat the fruit of the tree of life. But when God did that, 
that was also mercy because it meant that Adam and Eve would not just go on forever and ever getting worse and worse in sin. When God judged the world and he brought in the flood, he saved Noah and his family through a boat that floated on the waters of judgment. There was judgment, but there was mercy floating on the very waters of judgment. And so with the Lord Jesus Christ, he is crucified. He is killed. He is forsaken and abandoned. That's judgment. You can't call it anything other than judgment. And yet from that womb of judgment, mercy comes forth. There's a couple of applications for us. One application, of course, is don't think of judgment then as a bad thing. Don't think of God judging as somehow being opposed to God being merciful. God brings mercy out of judgment. Now, we don't want to be chastened for our sins, but hopefully our biggest desire is not to commit the sin. If we do sin, it is a mercy to be chastened for it. God corrects us in order to make us better, in order to bring us the mercy of growth, of improvement, of repentance. So if you find yourself in darkness, in affliction, in sorrow, if God's face is hidden from you, you can follow the example of Christ. You can call out on him as your God. You can be honest with him about what you're feeling, about what you're going through. But you can also have this confidence that the judgment fell on Christ so that there would be mercy for you. There's another application, and that is we don't really know who Jesus is unless we see him as dying under the judgment of God. The revelation of Jesus as God's son was made not in spite of his crucifixion, but through his crucifixion. That's what you see very clearly in the case of the centurion. So when we're sharing the gospel with others, we should never conceal that Jesus was humiliated, that Jesus was disgraced, that Jesus was crucified, that Jesus suffered. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. We shouldn't suppress that. We shouldn't minimize that. And we shouldn't say to people, well, Jesus suffered, so you won't have to. In terms of God's judgment, that's true. In terms of life in this world, no, he calls on you to take up your cross and follow him. And you take up your cross because you're expecting to be killed, not because you're expecting to have a nice ornament for your garden or your wall. We don't need to suppress this. We don't need to spin or advertise for Jesus in some other way. The revelation of who Jesus is is made through his humiliation, through his death. So where is our glory? Well, Paul said it. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is where we find our confidence. This is where we find our boasting. This is where we rejoice. In this moment of supreme judgment, there were hints of hope because God brings mercy out of judgment. And what is the fundamental mercy that you need? You need to know who Jesus is. You need to know that he died under God's judgment 
so that we could be saved. Look to Jesus. Trust in an abandoned Jesus. I know that's not the end of the story, but you have to go through this part of the story to get to the end. Here's a Jesus whom even heaven has rejected. He's the one that we need. He's our only hope. Amen.